Could you please open your Bible to Romans chapter 15? Our text is the first, our 13 verses. The title of the sermon is Disagreement Yet United. You know, if you only had uh, 24 hours to live, uh, what would you do with your final day? You know, if we conducted a survey, no doubt our answers would vary greatly. And what uh, we chose to do and who we chose to do it with would say much about our priorities. Now, the thing is, there are very few throughout history uh, who knew they only had 24 hours to live. And most of them who were aware, uh, they didn't have freedom because they were awaiting to be executed. But there was one who knew his death was imminent, and that was Jesus Christ. Okay, he knew the cross was coming, and in his final 24 hours, he spent much time in prayer. And some of this is recorded for us in John chapter 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer. And it's interesting that on at least four occasions, he prayed for unity and oneness. Jesus in his, is in his final moments, and this is one of his predominant concerns. In verse 11, says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 22, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. And verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Okay, that's remarkable. Because think about it. All of the things that Jesus could have prayed about, and this was one of his chief concerns. The unity of his church was something that he cared about deeply. And since this was of some supreme importance to Jesus, if you and I profess to love him, we ought to share the same concern. It's one of the great stains on the church when we are content with disharmony. You know, when disunity is not something that concerns us, and when we hear about unity, we think, well, hey, that, that's just some unrealistic expectation that that'll be in the kingdom to come. It's not for now, but that's not the message of the Bible. We're being very inconsistent with the gospel and with Jesus when we live in disunity. When there are people in the church who we despise, who we ignore, who we are nasty and unkind towards. Okay, such attitudes are deplorable. And they go directly against our Savior's will for his church. Please understand, disunity is not a trivial matter. But rather it's one of the chief weapons in Satan's arsenal that he uses to weaken the church. You know, often as Christians, we're very concerned about threats from the outside. And they exist. It's a reality. But I would argue that the bigger threats to the church come from within. It's like we're concerned about the carpet snake outside when there's a brown snake inside. Okay, disunity will destroy a church far quicker than any external threats. Hence, we need to be alert and aware of disunity and its potential causes in our church. Because if Jesus was so concerned about unity, shouldn't we be concerned as well? 
Now, one of the leading causes of this unity in the local church okay, throughout history, certainly in the church at Rome, is differing views and opinions on issues that the Bible doesn't speak to clearly or directly, or things that are no longer required. Okay, different opinions in areas of liberty. And this is what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 14, and it continues through to the 13th verse of the 15th chapter. Okay, and we see in chapter 15 that these issues were damaging the unity of the congregation. Hence in verse 5, there's the call to be like-minded toward one another. Verse 6, one mind and with one mouth. Verse 7, receive ye one another. Okay, the Apostle Paul wanted unity in this church. And for there to be unity in the church at Rome, and for there to be unity in the church at Condal Park, we need to navigate our disagreements in areas of liberty. Okay, we need to walk through that the weaker and stronger brother issues in a way that builds unity, not destroys it. Now the issues that Paul has in mind in these chapters are sometimes referred to as a diaphora. So these are matters neither required of Christians nor prohibited to them. Today we say areas of liberty. It's easier than a diaphora. But a diaphora is a nice word. So we need to be very careful in defining and determining what fits into this category. And Pastor Matthew spoke about this last week. But I want to address it again. Keep it fresh in your minds. Not all issues are a diaphora matters. Not everything is an area of liberty. Understand that there are certain things that are non-negotiable when it comes to the gospel and Christianity. And this is not a call to forsake such things. Okay, this has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the faith. It's not talking about the doctrines or the way of life where the Bible is crystal clear. But there are other issues that Christians will disagree on. Okay, the first point of the sermon last week was that differences of opinion are inevitable. And I appreciate how realistic the Apostle Paul is. Okay, he doesn't present the church as some fairy tale where everybody agrees about absolutely everything. We never disagree about anything. Because that's not reality, is it? So a couple of questions about these idea forum matters. And this is picking up some things that we considered last week. I think it's helpful okay, for us to be refreshed okay, before we dissect the text for today. Okay, we need to ensure we understand the problem before we consider the solution. So question number one, why do we have different opinions? Why is there often so much diversity in the church? Okay, here are six suggestions. Number one, okay, the Bible has one right interpretation, but there are many applications. Okay, and what happens here is that people can apply a portion of scripture differently. Okay, you could have two preachers, they could exegete, a passage of scripture and their exegesis is identical but they could apply it differently and hence diverse standards opinions can come out from the same text number two there are interpretation issues we're not infallible in our interpretation okay there are times that people get their exegesis very wrong and as a result bound themselves to something that they shouldn't 
Okay, think of some of the Old Testament laws. Or they excuse themselves from something that they shouldn't. Or draw very bizarre applications that they shouldn't. Number three, our backgrounds and upbringing shape and mold us. Okay, there are different cultures in the church. And that's a wonderful thing. Okay, we've all been raised differently. Okay, and these things will shape our opinions, views, and convictions. Okay, one such example, if someone was raised in an incredibly legalistic environment, that will impact how you think right now. Number four, our previous experiences. What we've experienced in life has an impact on how we think. It has an impact on our views and opinions. We will be strong about some things because of what we've witnessed or experienced previously in life. Now, one example of that, one of my Bible college lecturers experienced a church split when he was a young pastor around a particular issue. And to this very day, he's incredibly passionate about that issue okay, because of the hurt that it caused him. Okay, so our experiences have an impact. Number five, our previous churches and preachers have a great impact. Okay, a lot of us have been at a different church and we hold their practices in high regard and this can shape our views. Likewise, a lot of us have had a preacher who has had a huge impact in our lives and his views and opinions have become our own. And the sixth suggestion is the different stages of spiritual maturity within the church. Okay, we don't need to have everything in order to experience salvation. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Imagine if the condition was, well, you have to pass a doctrinal examination before you can be saved. That would be terrifying. I was terrified when it was just Bible college or to be ordained to be a pastor. But imagine if we had to have that before God. That would be terrifying. Okay, so we don't need to have a robust systematic theology and have all the controversial issues sorted out before we come to Christ. But rather, this is a process, this is a journey, and everyone in the church are at different stages on that spiritual journey. Okay, there are ranges of maturity within the church. So there are many reasons why we can have different views and opinions. And that ought not to worry or phase us. Okay, different viewpoints aren't the big issue, it's how we deal with them that's the big issue. Now, question number two, what are some current examples? Now, last week, Pastor Matthews explained the issues that Paul was confronting in Rome. It was about meat and days. And these were obvious issues when Jew and Gentile would come together. But what would be some current issues that we could fit into this category? Now, what's interesting is that there's even debate about whether certain things should be classed as an adiaphora matter or not. Okay, so that makes it interesting. Now, here are some current things that I believe could potentially fit into this category. And I want to let you know that some of them could generate very strong feelings inside you, which is an indicator that it fits into this group. So here we go. Here's some suggestions. Should I get vaccinated or not? That's been a big one that has caused lots of issues throughout the church over the last couple of years. How should I educate my children? Homeschool, Christian school, public school. What political party should I vote for? Okay, you can't say that Jesus would definitely vote for liberal or labor. Okay, we don't have that authority. 
A Muslim comes to Christ and he still doesn't want to eat bacon. How do we work through that? Should we do this ministry or should we stop this ministry? Okay, people can think that a church is heretical because it dropped a ministry that the Bible doesn't prescribe. Should a Christian watch TV? What TV shows and movies are okay to watch? What music is okay to be on my playlist? What can a Christian do or not do on the Lord's Day? Should we celebrate Christmas? Should a Christian use antidepressants? What, what is classed as moral clothing? What Christian authors should we read or not read? And there was a big one when I was growing up. Read Harry Potter or not read Harry Potter. Okay? And there were incredibly strong views on both sides of that argument. Okay? And we could go on. But understand, disagreement is highly probable. Hence, this is the question. How do we navigate this without disrupting or destroying our unity as a church okay this is the question in focus in these two chapters and i want to build upon what pastor matthew said last sunday so how do we navigate these areas of liberty where, where to ask that the bible seems to not give a black and white answer okay how do we navigate this as a church without disrupting or destroying the unity that our Lord and Savior desires in his church. So I want to add two principles to those considered last week to help us as a church navigate these issues. Principle number one, we need to pursue pleasing others. Okay, we need to pursue pleasing others. You know, we live in an incredibly self-centered time. Now, mankind has always been selfish. This is part of our sinful DNA. But today, there seems to be an emphasis on self. It's about looking after me. It's what I want, what I need, what I think. I must be right. My liberties. Me, 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 me. And such thinking is like a devastating cyclone in the church, particularly when it comes to sorting through these issues of disagreement. Okay, like a cyclone, it can flatten a church if we are all about getting our own way, pushing our own viewpoints, enjoying our freedoms unconditionally. You know, I don't care what anyone else says or thinks. This self-focused and self-pleasing mentality will obliviate the unity of a church. It will leave a destructive path of ruin just like a Category 5 cyclone. So what's the solution? Well, let me warn you that the solution could be a little bit like swallowing that nasty tasting medicine. Could you recall your mom okay, when you were a kid trying to give you that medicine? And you're tensing and you're turning your head and then it hits your throat and it sends shivers all the way down your spine. It tastes disgusting. That is what this text may be like for some of us. Because often we, we are very certain that we are right. And we must have our way. And we're just going to do what we want. And we don't care when it comes to these issues. And then we're prone to judgmentalism and, and towards others and despising them. But I want you to notice what the text demands. Can we not to please ourselves, but rather please others? End of verse 1 and into verse 2. And not to please ourselves, let every one of us please his neighbor. Okay, we need to be thinking of others 
more than ourselves as we navigate these issues. And this follows on from the previous chapter. There we learned we're not to be a stumbling block. Okay? It isn't as simple as, well, hey, I can do this. My conscience allows it and I don't care what anyone else says. And furthermore, I'm going to look down on anyone else who isn't on the same page as me. And yet, let's be honest, we, we can think like this. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to enjoy every last drop of my liberty and I don't care. But that's not the right attitude. Because here we're called to have a one another focus. A desire to please others. Now, the idea of this word please is willing service rendered to others. One Greek lexicon offered this definition to accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires and interests of others. So it's willing to do things or not do things for the benefit of others. It's willing to lay aside legitimate freedoms if it's beneficial for a brother or sister. That is what it means to please others. Now we need to understand that there is a type of pleasing man that is wrong and sinful. Okay, Galatians 1.10 addresses this. Okay, we're not to be nice guys and girls in the sense of tolerating sin. Okay, nor are we to be completely controlled by, by this overwhelming sense of having to please everybody. Okay, we call that being a man pleaser. That's crippling. Okay, we're to love and please God primarily. But the sense of the word in this context is that there's to be a willingness to forsake legitimate things for the benefit of others. Okay, can you honestly say that you've got that attitude in your heart? Now I want you to notice in verse 1 that the greater responsibility is put on the shoulders of the strong. This doesn't mean that the weak have no obligations at all. But the greater duty is laid on the strong. Okay, who are the strong? Well, they are those who possess a broader and more biblical understanding of their freedom in Christ. And notice that Paul includes himself in this category. He says weak. Okay, we then that are strong. So those of us who are strong, including me, he says we ought. Okay, this is a word that stresses obligation. It's often used to speak of a debt. So the strong are not free to stampede the weak. They're not free to, to mock and ridicule them for their over-the-top extremism, but rather it's their duty to help the weak. Okay, they're, they're told to bear the infirmities. This word bear is the same word in Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens. And understand, this is not just tolerating the weak. It's like, okay, I, I won't say anything. I'll contain all of my frustrations. I'm just going to bottle it up and I'll just let it explode when I get home. But well, when I'm with them, I'll, I'll just tolerate them. That's not the sense. The, the idea is that the strong will be actively engaged in helping the weak. Okay, the image is this. You know, the weak are struggling to lift the weight so the strong will stick their shoulder under the weight and help them lift theirs. Okay, and the goal of this, according to verse 2, is edification. 
Okay, we don't want these issues to be a cause of destruction, but rather construction. And the strong have a duty to help build up the weak. But here's the thing, it's a lot easier to destroy than build, isn't it? You know, just last week, I had to pull some bunks and cupboards out of my camper trailer that I had made. Okay, when I made it, it took me five to six hours to make them and to fit them, and it took me 20 minutes to pull them out. Tearing down is a lot easier, but that's not how we navigate these issues. The strong, the mature are to get beside the weak, the immature, and help them make progress, help them to grow. Help them to understand their freedoms in Christ. And often the best way to do this is by laying aside your own freedoms, at least for a time. So this is the duty of the strong. And we could summarize this in one word. Love. What does 1 Corinthians 13 tell us? Love bears all things. And it's interesting that Paul uses the word neighbor in verse 2. And to me, that that seemed an unusual choice of words. But I think it's likely that he wants us to recall Jesus' law summary. Love God and love your neighbor. Okay, that's to be our disposition as we navigate these issues. We are to be loving. We need to be concerned about building up. We need to please others, not ourselves. And the greater responsibility is on the shoulders of the strong. In Jesus' church, strength means obligation. So what does this look like? Well, it includes a willingness to forego our rights and freedoms for others. Not do something that we are free to do in order to help someone else. We're to be willing to adjust our lifestyle and preferences if it would contribute to the spiritual development of somebody else. Now, it's not calling us to always cater for the lowest common denominator, nor does it mean that we should allow the weak to stay weak. Remember, our goal is to edify, build them up, to strengthen them. But there does need to be a willingness to voluntarily forgo things that we're perfectly entitled to do if it will help others. So those who are mature believers are to show genuine, loving, and practical consideration for others. It's showing respect for sincere views, practices, or convictions that we may not agree with. And not resort to being critical and condescending. It's being sensitive to the views of others and being willing to voluntarily and lovingly refrain from exercising our liberty if it could harm someone else you know a couple of examples where somebody has a weakness with music don't play anything in front of them that could offend them even if you believe it's okay to listen to such music i know when emma and i first started dating music had been a very big struggle for her so we made the agreement that we would have incredibly strict standards okay there was music that i thought was okay but i laid that aside for her benefits another example okay there's a new believer they may be misunderstanding the old testament and they're applying dietary requirements so the end goal is to help them understand the scriptures correctly 
But for the time being, if necessary, don't eat those foods if it's going to help them. Kate, don't eat bacon for a period of time. Don't eat shellfish if it's going to help them. Okay, we need to be willing to do that. So we need to ensure that we aren't focused on self, but rather pleasing, edifying, and loving others. That's the goal, especially for those who are strong. And in order to drive this point home, Paul uses Jesus as the example in verse 3. He says, Jesus pleased not himself. It's like, hey, listen up. Jesus did this. He quotes Psalm 69 verse 9, which refers to general reproaches and suffering for the benefit of another. He then writes verse 4, a very famous verse, to defend his use of the Old Testament. But the point is this, if Jesus did this, okay, if Jesus pleased others, not himself, who do we think we are to not do it? Okay, if Jesus is all about pleasing others, which he was, who do we think we are if we shouldn't have to do this? Okay, are the disciples greater than the master? So we need to be like Jesus who gave up everything for the benefit of others. Again, that's the gospel. And this is how the gospel impacts these situations. We need to be willing to give things up, even legitimate things, if it helps somebody else. We need to be focused on pleasing others more than pleasing self. This is the first principle. The second principle, we need to protect and preserve unity. Have you ever won the argument but damaged the relationship? Okay, you proved your point, but now you've hurt or you've lost a friend. You know, this is something that we need to be so careful of as we navigate these areas. Unity and harmony need to be guarded because they're a precious commodity. If you had a block of gold in one hand and a block of wood in the other, and you had to let go of one... Which one would you keep? It would be the block of gold because it's far more valuable. And likewise, unity and harmony are far more valuable than refusing to let go of your liberty. Notice verses 5 and 6. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could call this a prayer wish of Paul's. He, he desires, he earnestly desires that the church would be like-minded. That they would have unity and harmony. Okay, and notice this is produced by God. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you. God needs to grant this. This is not something that just happens naturally. It requires a divine work. But what are we to make of like Mindedness. What does this mean? Well, in context, it wouldn't make sense to say that we must see eye to eye on every issue and have 100% agreement because that would render the whole passage useless. But rather, this is, God, this is Paul asking God to give to them, despite their difference of opinions, a common perspective and purpose. That they would be united in their love and devotion to Jesus Christ. 
Okay, this is a spirit of unity possessed by being in Christ. Jesus is the source of our unity. He unites us. He is the cord that binds us together. So understand, unity doesn't mean uniformity. We don't need to agree on absolutely everything in order to be unified. As Christians in these areas of liberty, there is room for disagreement. We can have different views, opinions and practices and still be friends. Please understand that. Unity doesn't demand that we all agree. Something that I find very interesting is that in these two chapters, if you notice that Paul doesn't say who's right or wrong, he doesn't deal with the particular issue, but he seeks to equip them to work through these issues biblically. He never says directly or indirectly that everybody needs to be of the same opinion, but rather he focuses on the relational aspect, not on the right and wrong aspects. And in order to maintain unity, it's vital that we grasp that you don't always have to be right. You don't always need to win the argument. You don't always need to have your way. We can have different views and still be friends. Okay, there won't be a time in our church where everybody agrees on absolutely everything. And that's okay. But please understand, different opinions don't need to destroy relationships. We can think differently about areas of liberty and still be united. We can disagree and still be friends. Okay, we can think differently. And we can still be like-minded. Because our unity is based on Christ and the gospel. Now I want you to see something very important in verse 6. It begins with the word that. It's the Greek word hina. And when we see that word, it denotes a purpose clause. So we're to strive for unity and like-mindedness even when we disagree. Why? Verse 6, so that with one mind and one mouth we may glorify God. So what this means is that when unity is lacking, we don't glorify God. And our worship is not pleasing in his sight. Okay, our whole purpose in life is to glorify God. Okay, that's our purpose. But we are unable to do that effectively if we're living in disunity and disharmony. So my friend, please grasp how important unity is. It's not trivial. Okay, it, it's not something that, that doesn't matter, some secondary issue. We, we need to cut out that cancerous thinking that thinks unity is not important. That's how the devil thinks. Unity is of utmost importance. And a refusal to pursue and protect it. Okay, it will hinder your spiritual life as an individual. But it also hinders us as a church corporately. It affects everybody. Because this teaches us that our worship, and our ability to glorify God is impoverished when we are not united. As one of the reformers said, the unity of his servants is so much esteemed by God that he will not have his glory sounded forth amidst discords and contentions. Let that sink in. May the Holy Spirit burn that into our hearts. That is why unity matters. 
That is why we must preserve and protect it as we navigate these issues. And we do this by receiving others as Christ has received us. That's verse 7. And that's an amazing statement. I'd love for everyone to go home and meditate on that verse this afternoon. Receive others as Christ has received us. Think that through. Okay, how did Christ receive us? How did Christ accept us? Well, he accepted us when we were spiritually destitute. We were the enemies of God. We were enslaved in sin. And he accepted us with our many prejudices, our weaknesses, our blind spots, our shortcomings, our immense stubbornness. That's how Christ has received us. Okay, and if you don't know Christ as Savior, he will receive you too, no matter how sinful you are, no matter how stubborn you are, no matter how rebellious you are. If you come to Christ, repent of your sin, place your faith and trust in him, he will receive you. Okay, this is the glory of the gospel, that Christ receives sinful people. And since this is true... And we have been the beneficiaries of it. How can we not receive others? How can we not extend which we have received? That doesn't make sense. And the Apostle Paul goes on to illustrate this point. Okay, he uses the Jews and Gentiles in the church as an example. This is from verse 8 to 12. And this probably has two functions. Number one. It's a reminder that this is not the type of issue that's in focus. Okay, this is not an area of liberty. Okay, the Jews or the Gentiles couldn't say, well, in my liberty, I'm not going to accept them. Okay, there are certain issues that don't fit under this class, as we mentioned earlier. The second point is like Jew and Gentile are united in one body. Okay, this is the church. You've got people who are hostile by nature coming together. Okay, they unite. This is the church and we're not to go against that in how we treat each other. But rather when we're faced with these issues, we need to act in a way that protects and preserves unity. We're to receive each other like Christ has received us. My friend, unity is more important than winning. Forsaking something to preserve harmony is worth it. And may we not allow these areas of disagreement to tear the unity of our church apart. Because unity is a valuable commodity. Jesus is deeply concerned about the unity of his church. And we should do all that we can to protect and preserve it. You know, there's always going to be differences of opinions in our church. Okay, we, we will come to different conclusions. There will be strong and weak in our midst. It's inevitable that we, who are different ages, different backgrounds, temperaments, maturity levels, abilities, drives, we will see and understand things differently. But this doesn't have to cause disunity and disharmony. We can be united in spite of disagreements we desperately need god's help with this we, we can't manufacture this in of ourselves it needs a deep work of grace in our lives but through grace this is possible our church can navigate these areas well for the glory of god 
I want to leave with you five things that you need to believe and practice and then a step-by-step procedure to close. Okay, five things. Number one, disunity is an abomination. This is a strong statement, but I believe it's required. Okay, I know there's some disunity in our church and it's not something we can tolerate. It can't be brushed aside as inconsequential. How can we be unconcerned about something that concerns Jesus so greatly? Okay, and if we grasp how serious and horrible disunity is, this will help us greatly as we navigate these issues. Number two, you can disagree and still be friends. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. We, we don't all have to agree about absolutely everything in order to be unified. Differing opinions don't need to destroy relationships. Number three, lay things aside for the benefit of others. This is the clear message of the text. Be willing to voluntarily and lovingly refrain from exercising liberty that could harm someone else. Okay, make it your goal to, to build others up, not tear them down. Number four, you're not infallible and neither am I. You know, often we view ourselves and our standards and our convictions as infallible. And if somebody doesn't measure up, well, they're wrong. That's very proud. It's very incorrect. We need to maintain the humility that's willing to admit we could need to change things. And number five, God cares about this and he will enable. It's very obvious that God cares about unity and harmony. He cares about how we treat each other and we need his help and he will help us if we ask him. Okay, so there are five undergirding truths from the text that we need to believe and practice as we navigate these issues. Now I want to leave you with a step-by-step procedure that kind of summarizes the last two sermons that I trust will help us to work through these matters of liberty. Very quickly, number one, is it commanded in the Bible? It's the first question we need to ask. If it is commanded in the Bible, obey. It's not an area of liberty. Number two, Are there any clear scriptural principles? If so, apply and follow them. Number three, what is your conscience telling you? Don't go against it. Number four, don't judge or look down on others when you've made your decision, but rather respect their convictions. Number five, are you the weak or the strong one? Okay, we need to determine that because that decides what you need to do next. Number six, if you are the strong, you have an obligation to help the weak. This may mean revising your behavior. Number seven, am I building others up or tearing them down with what I'm doing? Okay, is it edifying or or is it hindering others? Number eight, am I promoting unity in the church? And then number nine, am I treating others how Jesus treats me? There's a rough mud map to help us navigate these issues in our church. We will face them. And hence, with God's enabling grace, may we deal with them in a way that builds and not destroys unity. All for God's glory and for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for this These two chapters of Scripture, incredibly practical, uh, so relevant 
all rooted and grounded in the gospel. And I do pray that you would help us to uh, apply uh, what your word says in our in our day-to-day interactions with others. Help us to grasp the, the importance of, of unity and to be preserving that as we navigate through uh, these areas of liberties. Like always, we ask for your help. We desperately need it. And uh, by your grace, please help us to navigate these areas well as a church. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.